So if you have your Bibles, as you make your way back to your seat, I want to invite you to turn with me to one of my favorite passages of Scripture. We're going to be in Judges chapter 21. Last night, that's right, it's a good spot to be in, right? Uh, last night, as we were in creation, today we're going to be a little bit uh, going down through the Old Testament and going to talk about corruption. As you are going back to your seat, though, I want you to think about something. Some of your BCMs meet in some really nice uh, spaces where you got like all this tech equipment. And how many of your BCMs like y'all kind of meeting in a building and some of y'all got to bring some of the stuff to make it happen? You know what I'm talking about? Like some of you are like, I got to bring my computer here, got to bring the instruments here. Like you're kind of making it and you put it together. Um, I love going and speaking at different BCMs through the years. Uh, as soon as I graduated college and was able to go around and speak at different ones, I can remember though one year speaking at a BCM in South Carolina to where uh, a lot of the tech equipment, if you will, was brought in by the students themselves. Okay. So what was happening that night was that as there was a student who brought in his laptop and we were showing the projection lyrics on the back wall and so we kind of had some announcements going and somebody was giving a testimony and kind of everything kind of went uh, a little bit and, and so somebody's up there giving a testimony and then all of a sudden I guess the guy had turned off Keynote or ProPresenter or whatever budget software it was at the time and at that point what happened was his screensaver came up on the wall. No big deal unless it's his screensaver. Because the first image was a pretty shocking image of a woman not wearing a whole lot of clothing. In the middle of the BCM Worship Center, there she was. And the same way that y'all went, like it was more of a, like that moment, right? Everybody saw it except for the guy running the computer. He's kind of just off in La La Land, kind of doing this, whatever. And so it's just really uncomfortable. Personal stage has no idea what's going on. There's somebody behind her, literally, okay? And, and then all of a sudden, the image uh, switches and it's another one and there's an even larger gasp from the room to which I hit the guy in the arm I said buddy and he goes huh? look like this okay and it's computer right now can you imagine how awkward that was to come in and speak after that right okay like because I mean it, it's so shocking and, and many of you would go that must have been one of the most awkward worship services in the world for what was probably supposed to be a private matter to be public, you know, public for all that BCM and so I would ask you how would you like your private stuff to be put on the wall this week like what if we took one of these cables and put it up to your phone and you hadn't had a chance to clear out the history you hadn't had a chance to get rid of all the messages you hadn't had a chance to get rid of all that stuff. And if that doesn't make you a little bit uncomfortable, what I'm saying is it's so easy for us to go, that's horrible that that guy did that. Why? Because it was in a worship service, and yet you think that what you do in private isn't that big of a deal. And we have forgotten that no longer the temple is a building. We are the temple. And so if you couldn't imagine doing it in the BCM Center, if you couldn't imagine doing it in your church, then why in the world are you doing it in the first place? What happens a lot of times is that we get so caught up and we see certain sins from afar and there are certain ones that we are caught up in that really don't bother us. So we go through the Old Testament and we saw how God created a good people, but things got out of control very quickly. The last half of the Old Testament, things get even worse. And so let me give you this passage of scripture that helps summarize kind of the mood of what was going on in the Old Testament. And then we're going to do like we did last night. We're going to walk through very quickly another section of the Bible so that we can understand what God's story truly is. In Judges chapter 21, verses 24 and 25, the last two verses in this book of the Bible that really describes how bad sin takes a people, it says it this way. 
And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out there from there, every man to his inheritance. So they're going to where they live. There's been a kind of national tragedy. Now we're all going back home. We're all going to go do our own thing and then listen to the end of this book and see if this is not disturbing. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Amen. Okay. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A culture that has authority on the shelf. A culture that knows what God says, but places it to the side. A culture that everybody is determining what they think is best and no one has the right to challenge them. Can you ever think of a culture that sounds like that? Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes putting God's word on the shelf and determining that we are the standard of what we believe to be true or not. This is where the Old Testament was throughout the rest of this section. And so as we've walked through these first few steps and seen God creating a people, let me pick up to where we left off last night. Joshua leading the people into the promised land, telling them, choose this day whom you're going to serve. And then the next book in the Bible is a book just that we read from named Judges. Now, some of you would know Judges because you know some of the people in it, right? You know Samson, right? You might know Gideon. There's a few places. But honestly, this book is really, really messed up. And here's the reason why. What we see in this book is that the cycle of sin punished again and again, Right? There's a cycle that takes place in the book of Judges, and and this is the cycle. The people start sinning. God says enough is enough, and so he brings suffering to the people. And the suffering happens through an enemy nation coming in and punishing them. And then things get so bad, and they have this thing called supplication. It's prayer, and they're going, God, we promise we'll never do it again if you get us out of this. And so God brings a deliverer, and they see salvation. And then guess what happens? As soon as God delivers them, they get used to it, and what are they right back in again? Sin. Kind of sounds like uh, y- y'all ever had, uh, if, you were, if you grew up in the youth group, y'all remember church camp, right? Y'all remember church camp? This is what I always, uh, so I love preaching at church camps in the summertime, but I always, I always say this, uh, night five or the last night of camp, there's something called the youth group sway. You know what I'm talking about? Last song, everybody just does this, right? And by the way, there's, there's too much B.O. in that room to be doing that in the first place, but everybody, everybody's singing, and there's somebody's going like, we're going to go back to our home this summer, and we're going to make a difference, and we're going to give, I know I said that last year, but I mean it this year. You know, like every year, right? Every year. The cycle starts. Why? Because at some point, you start making deals with God and say, get me out of this trouble, God, and I promise I'll start reading my Bible again. Get me out of these consequences that I deserve, and I promise I'll go to church again. Lord, just please, that was the last time, I promise. Help me not get caught, and I'll, I'll do better. And you'll be scared enough for two weeks, and you're back. And this cycle that we see in the book of Judges happened over and over and over again. We see people like Barak, who was lackadaisical. We see Gideon, who was fearful. We see Samson, who was lustful. We see Ehud was just controversial, all that stuff. Um, But what happens is all these judges are stepping in, and you see what happens in a culture that when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, a culture thoroughly deteriorates. Whenever you decide, whenever we are part of a culture that says, everybody determine what's right, what you think, what I think, then all of a sudden the culture will completely turn aside. And what we find in the book of Judges is exactly that. God's people get so far away from the truth because without a commitment to God's standard, they spiraled out of control. The end of the book of Judges, 
we find it concluding with homosexual activity, unthinkable violence, and sex trafficking among God's people. This is the place where there's really no warm and fuzzies. It's just one chaotic situation after the next. So then we turn the corner to a book called 1 Samuel, where what eventually happens is, is that a kingdom is established, and kings took up the crown. Now, what takes place at this moment is kind of actually very, very sad initially, because there's this priest by the name of Samuel, and little Sammy grows up in, in, in the, the temple there, and, and growing up kind of in the house of God and, and getting situated. And what happens one day is that God comes to him, says there's going to be something that's going to happen in this land that's going to be very different. But when Samuel grows up, then all of a sudden the people come to him and go, hey, Samuel, we need you to appoint us a king. He goes, you've got one. His name is Yahweh, the great I am. Remember him, the one who rescued you, the one who redeemed you. What do you need? Yeah, but we want one like all the other nations because they got kings who fight their battles and we want one of those. And he says, have you not seen the battles that we've won under the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Yeah, but we want to be like them. So God looks at Samuel and says, don't be offended that they're asking a king. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So give them what they want. What do they want? They wanted a king. Here are the stipulations. They wanted him to be tall, dark, and handsome. Now, ladies, some of you are like, that ain't a bad idea. Okay, let, let me tell you something. You can find a tall, dark, and handsome that can mask a whole lot of ungodliness. And you can be real happy with him for a while. But I'm telling you this, if he's making you drift away from the Lord, he is not worth it. You need to drop him like a bad habit. And, you can, and if you do, you're going to cry for two months. But I promise you, it's better to cry now for two months than cry for the rest of your life. Just saying. Side note, there we go. Okay, um, so here we are. What takes place is they reject him. They look at Saul and go, he's, he's handsome, he's rich, he's dark, and he's tall. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, it says he's a head taller than everybody else. Look, everybody, the nations are going to fear us because we got a tall king. Woo! That worked really good until somebody taller showed up to a battle one day. Isn't it interesting that they chose a king based on his height and their greatest enemy came a little bit taller? Put your trust in one thing and God goes, okay, we can do this. See, usurping God's authority only reveals our own insecurity. When we try to take away from what God is and who he is and what he can do, only it does is it reveals one thing about us, how truly insecure we are and how we put our faith and trust in so many ridiculous, temporal things of which we can't even control. So, Saul being taller than anyone else. Then all of a sudden, a giant by the name of Goliath came in that day. And where was their tall king? Shaking in his boots in the tent, unwilling to go down to the valley to fight. But yet, there was a young boy who said, God helped me cure, kill a bear one time. God helped me cure, kill a lion one time. That joker right there, I think I can take down, right? And, and everybody's shocked by this, but all of a sudden, Goliath had made his taunts day after day after day after day in 1 Samuel chapter 17. But then there was something that took place one day. It says he began to defy the God of Israel, and David was there. David was there. David heard them, and all of a sudden, the problem was this. The taunting had not changed, but the person receiving it had. And so as he hears this taunt, all of a sudden he steps up and he goes, is anybody not going to go fight that guy? And he said, have you seen the size of our challenger? And David is saying, have you seen the size of our God? Because he's defying him. So this isn't a battle between two men anymore. He's talking about our God. I'm going to go down there if nobody else will. And so he does. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 46, he tells Goliath, I am about to take your head off. And here's why. So that all the nations may know that there is a God in Israel. Do you realize that even on that battlefield, God was doing something missional so even the Philistines could see that there was something better 
than their golden statues that could not deliver them. So even David was an incredible person who did all these wonderful things and won the battle that day, and he became a king, and everybody thought, okay, he's so much far better than Saul. But can I tell you something? The greatest of men still let the people down. Even David, even in all of his glory, even in all these wonderful, successful moments, Goliath, the, the temple being restored, uh, uh, idea coming up and how he wants to do, he brings the, the ark back into Jerusalem, all these wonderful things that he wants to do. He's a wonderful, wonderful man in so many ways and so much better than Saul. But for every victory in the valley, there was always a compromise on the roof for David. He got too accustomed to where at one point he trusted in the Lord, then he began to pop up his collar and think that he was in charge and do whatever he wanted to do. And so for this, any shred of human heroics was always tainted by frustrating frailties among even these kings. David, for the warrior king, became an entitled leader who would take anything that he thought he wanted. In fact, it's interesting that even if you think in 2 Samuel, when it talks about him peering on the roof at Bathsheba, the language is intentionally similar to when Adam and Eve saw the fruit, desired it, and took it, that he sees her, desires her, and takes her. It is the right to do whatever he wants to do and decide that he is the ultimate authority. And so here's, here's the deal. There's this promise that after David, one day David says in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he wants to build God a house. And God says, no, you can't because you're a man of bloodshed, but I'm going to build you a house. What do you mean? And he says in 2 Samuel seven thirteen that after David would come a descendant, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You go, is that king David? No, it wasn't king David. Is somebody after him? Was it Solomon? No, I definitely want Solomon, but there is someone coming from the line of David who would reign forever whose origins were of old. In fact, many people thought it was Solomon, by the way, and he started very well. Do you remember when Solomon got the kingdom? God says, give me one request and I'll give it to you. He says, give me the wisdom to lead your people. And, and brother got some wisdom, did he not? You ever read Proverbs? You ever read just the beauties of like, the, the seriousness of Ecclesiastes, of how all these things and pursuits in life just don't measure up? Like there's so much amazing thing about it. In fact, if you think about where do we go in Scripture, especially go to the Old Testament, where do we learn about love? Well, you learn about love from Song of what? Solomon. Yeah, I mean, this guy's beautiful stuff, man. I mean, by, by the way, I can remember, like, that was a book, first time Bible reading plan. I'm like, this one's different, okay, right? Like, you read through that, it's just a little bit different. Like, and I'm just saying, guys, if you ever need some pickup lines, I use this all the time on, on my wife. Hey, girl, your hair is like a flock of goats. I'm just so, it looks so good. Your neck like a Tower of David. Come on with it, okay? Like, there's some good stuff in there, right? Now, think about it. The guy who wrote the book in the Old Testament about marriage had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What does that show? The one who at first wrote the truth that we would live by later on in his life could not follow it himself. This is why it's to be careful for every single one of us. You walk with the Lord closely, that's great for now. The enemy's got a long-term strategy and he's in no rush to take you out. We'll talk about parenting. Oh, train up a child in the way that he should go. Thank you, King Solomon. For all those 1,000 ladies in his life, you only hear about two kids. How is that possible? Because a lot of the statues he put up, they were sacrificing children to. That's why. King Solomon going to be the king that reigns forever? You and I better be glad that he's not. 
because for all his wisdom, for all his glories, for all the things that happened at the height of Israel's status, they were still a train wreck. So eventually, some prophets began to go out and try to get everyone's attention. A nation was divided while prophets warned in the street. After Solomon, what took place was a civil war, if you will, that Israel on one side and Judah on one side. And you get to books like the Kings and the Chronicles that are hard to keep track of who's king, who's dead, who's good, who's a prophet. But as you go through it, what you see is that sometimes the leader will dictate how the culture will follow. Someone who follows the Lord, the culture will follow in suit. And someone else who turns the Lord, the rest of the culture will do this. And so prophets start to rise up. So you see in the Bible, Kings and Chronicles, that gives us the narrative. But then all of a sudden you start seeing books like, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. These are basically the podcasts of the famous preachers of the day, okay? This is what they're commenting on what's happening in the history section. We see things like this, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, People, come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as what? White as snow. You see prophets like Jeremiah warning the nation, going further and further away from God's truth in chapter 6, verse 15. He says it this way, my people don't know how to blush. Think about that. Just, just for a second. Jeremiah says God's people don't even know how to blush anymore. They've gotten so used to sin, it doesn't even bother them. I told you I'm a local church pastor. Uh, I love teaching and, and loving on our folks and trying to encourage them in the word. And I'll, I'll never forget a few uh, years ago where I was preaching and, and I can't even remember the passage, but I remember that I talked about, hey, as what we see and how it can kind of create certain thoughts in our heads and how we have to be careful. It doesn't kind of grab our hearts. And I can remember giving this kind of admonition to our church. If you would feel uncomfortable watching what you watch in your house, if I was sitting next to you, you probably don't need to watch it, right? Because if you'd feel uncomfortable if your pastor was in the room, you need to remember that God's always in the room. So I said that mainly geared towards the teenagers, the college students, the young adults. I never expected a 90-year-old grandma to come up to me and say, preacher, we got to talk. I said, what's up? What's going on? She said, I got to change some habits of mine. I said, why? She goes, I cannot watch The Bachelor next to you. Grandma. <laughs> you don't ever get too young or too old to feel like you have moved past where you should not see that godless, sinful, wretched, wicked things should still cause us to blush, folks. And we're growing up in a culture right now that because you don't do all those things, you're kind of okay here in the gray area. And I'm just saying the gray area is what gets you to the, the wrong spot. You have to be careful now. Jeremiah says, my people don't even know how to blush. It doesn't even bother them to hear certain things, to see certain things, to even do certain things. It doesn't bother them anymore. It's like callous on the fingertips of many guitarists that at first when you try to play, it hurts. But then after a while, it doesn't even prick you anymore. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, that calluses develop on our heart where sin doesn't bother us. Ezekiel warned in the street, in chapter 33, verse 11, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Please turn, live. You don't have to go here because they saw an end coming to this and it was not anything good. But all the people wanted to follow God but also had these idols on the side. They wanted to follow all these different types of religions if they were to advance their causes. And I'm here to tell you that tweaking religious devotion to satisfy personal desires always invites disaster. If you try to take the God of the Bible and mix it in with some type of God of the culture so that you can do you, 
be what you want to be, act the way that you want to act, it always leads to disaster because God is a jealous God. And if that seems shocking to you because you've always said jealousy is a bad thing, Scripture says that God is a jealous God. I don't think that's a bad thing, and here's the reason why. If I came home one night to my house and there was some dude sitting in my chair around the table next to my wife with my three kids eating my food and my family, do I have the right to be jealous? Yes. I had the right to go to jail that night after what's about to happen, right? Why? Because she's mine. They're mine. They belong to me, and they cannot belong to another. And God's people were wanting to have God when they needed him, like as a spare tire, all the while having all the gods on the side that they wanted. To be able to call up whenever they needed to do whatever they wanted to do. So these prophets, they warned, and the people didn't listen. In fact, here was the warning. Some of the prophets started to begin to tell them, if you continue this sinful ways, God is going to let these pagan nations come in and wipe us out. And it was almost a laughing stock to the people. There's no way God would let them come in. They're so much worse than us. And we are God's people, and yet they weren't acting like God's people. So his protection was removed from them. Godless enemies came and administered defeats to even the people of God. Both Israel and Judah go down in surprising, alarming fashions and flame of fire and people being taken out, temple destroyed, walls broken down, men, women, and children killed and carried off into horrible situations. One of the prophets named Habakkuk said it this way in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one is more, more righteous than himself? You got that? Habakkuk goes, how can you let nations like Babylon come in and take us out, the people of God? They are so much worse than us. And here's the issue. Israel and Judah have been living like sinful cities like Babylon for so long, God finally allowed them to change their citizenship there. You want to be like Babylonians? You can live there then. You want to act like the cultures of the nations of this world? I'll give you the keys to be there as long as you need to be to wake up that these paths in the world are not worth it. It's what they wanted. And what was so shocking to these prophets that they would argue in with God is, God, yes, it will upset our reputation among the nations, but ultimately, won't this look bad on you? You don't want to do this. And this is what God whispered through the ears and mouth of the prophets. You've already made my reputation look bad among the nations. Now's the time to fix it. This is one of the most shocking things in the scripture, that God will allow temporary harm to his reputation for the eternal good of our redemption. God will allow years, decades, and even not centuries of what appears to be a black eye on his reputation. Why? Because when God's people act like the world, the reputation's tainted anyway. So why don't we wake it up? So God allowed these nations to come in. And for all the people standing up, God, you need us. We are supposed to be your chosen people that would be a light to the nations. But you've snuffed it out. This is what you've wanted. They weren't acting like his people. So why in the world would they be treated and protected like it? And so for the eternal good of our redemption, God disciplined his children and flattened and humiliated a nation among all the other nations. And not only were they defeated, but actually many of them were carted off. They were a people in exile, learning how to suffer from their guilt. Here they are, right? 
a people in exile suffering from their guilt. And so these people were carted off, people that you probably remember in the Bible, like Daniel and other, other folks that are literally having to learn how to live for God in a culture that does not follow God. And oftentimes, one of the most quoted Bible verses, which is a wonderful Bible verse, is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for a future and a hope. We love that verse so much. We put it on coffee mugs. We put it on little um, Snuggies. We put it on socks. We put it on shirts. It's a really, really good verse. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you. It's good plans. It's not bad plans. The problem is this. Nobody ever puts Jeremiah 29, 10 on a coffee cup. You know Why? Because the verse right before that verse, he says, you're going to be in exile for 70 years because I'm putting you there. 70 years. Get married, have some kids, build a house, plant some gardens. You're going to be here a while. But don't worry, I got some plans for you. Now they're 70 years down the line, okay? Because it's almost as if sometimes, folks, we're going to have to learn how to live in exile for a while before we can truly experience the presence of God. It is kind of unique to me. If we think through, my life is just going to be a few decades of living in exile, not where I'm supposed to be either. And I have to learn how to live for the good of the community, but also pursuing truth in the midst of a culture that does not. When the 70 years are complete, they will go back. And so here they are, they're in exile. They're having to live in a different culture, in a different language, different customs, different situations, oppressed, on the outskirts, on the margins. And they had to start suffering with their guilt. They had to start thinking through, well, is this where we want to be? Is this what we want to do? But, but I need you to understand that what was happening here in these 70 years of their exile is that if you continually ask God to give you space, he will eventually grant your request. The people had constantly said, get out of our nose, God. We've got this under control. Give us some space. Allow us to do what we want to do. And finally, God said, here, you can have exactly what you wanted. Can I just tell everyone that there is also coming a day where God is going to do that for eternity? I know heaven and hell seem like very abstract thoughts to many of you, and hell also seems one that we really don't talk about. But hell is God giving sinners what they've always wanted, distance from God. It's just for eternity. And God gave it in a kind of snapshot for them that season of history to allow them to understand. And so some of these people had to start learning how to, to do these things, to how to learn to live for God in a culture that did not. Daniel in chapter one, verse eight says this, he decided he wasn't gonna defile himself with the king's food and he was gonna do things God's way. There were other friends, you guys know him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That's actually their Babylonian names. Their real names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They got snuffed out in that culture because God's names were embedded in their names. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they decided not to worship the king. In fact, they ignored him and they threw him in a fiery furnace and they said what? They said, you can throw us in there, but we're not gonna bow down and worship you. And as they're there in the fiery furnace, it was as if there was a fourth person in the fire that had the appearance of the son of God because God doesn't always spare us from the fires but he promises to go with us in them and I would much rather be in the fire due to my obedience than outside the fire due to my disobedience because God meets us there so as they go through, we see Daniel deciding that he's not going to sit down and pray. I love this. There was an edict that said everybody's got to pray to King Darius and bring any request before him and don't pray to any God. And Daniel goes up to his room like he's done for the last few years, open up his windows and begins to pray towards Jerusalem because that's his home. 
He's thrown in the lion's den. And yet God shuts the mouths of these lions. And it's almost like God sent this little crew as a missionary unit to Babylon so that his name would be known. Throughout that time, they did not waste that exile. And so when there were doors that were closed, Daniel opened up windows and they learned how to live in such a way. Eventually, something changed though. A remnant returns and a city was rebuilt. Eventually, there's a group of people that gets to leave the area and actually go back and reestablish Jerusalem. God turns these authorities of these other cultures who do not know him, who do not fear him, who really don't care. He turns the chart of history and allows these pagan kings to allow God's people to go back. And so they started sending up, hey, we're all going back to Jerusalem, but too many of them have gotten too accustomed to Babylon that they don't want to move anymore. But there are guys who go back. There are people who, who move and start to, to go through this. But the reason why some of them had stopped because those who endure learn how to follow God among those who do not. So some of these people throughout this exile time learn how to endure, learn how to walk with God but among those people who did not know how to do it. But eventually what takes place is you see the opportunity came and they went. There were guys like Ezra and Zerubbabel. They came and reestablished the temple. They put the temple up and said, if we're going to do anything, we've got to get it right back with the Lord again. So we're going to have the place of worship. And they set the temple on its, on its set and it was there. And then all of a sudden a guy by the name of Nehemiah comes along and says, we've got to establish walls around the temple so that enemies can't come in but the problem was this and there was a prophet named Haggai who came along and in Haggai chapter 1 verse 5 he says it this way how are you people living in paneled houses when God's temple is still in ruins see people had come back but they had started working on their own affluence and pride and their stuff God's temple had been left in ruins this quickly we're back in our land all they wanted was free property and what would advance their family not what would advance the glory of God so they stopped working on that. So eventually what happens in the last two lines of our Old Testament study here today, there's a frightening place that takes place is that God's prophets really aren't standing up and speaking anymore. The people feared if they'd been left on their own. What eventually takes place is that over time, these prophets start calling out to God's people to repent and yet... These people get too accustomed and they start walking away from the truth. Malachi chapter 1 verse 10, the last chapter in the Old Testament, last book in the Old Testament. This is what Malachi the prophet says. And Malachi's message is so biting, and so controversial. Some people think that his, his name actually means my messenger. That might not have even been his real name because if his real name had been known, the priest would have killed him. This is what Malachi chapter 1 verse 10 says. I wish that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you. The temple's just been reestablished. The, 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 the walls around the city are, are back up. God's people are here and the worship is going forth. And God says this, somebody please lock the doors and stop coming in and giving me lip service. Can you just imagine for a moment, you show up to church on a Sunday morning and the doors are locked. And you start trying to lock them. There's no cars in the parking lot. What's going on? And there's a sign on the door and your pastor said, none of y'all mean it anyway. Go home. Pastor would probably get fired, right? But I'd be like fist bumping him or something. I'm like, come on with it, right, okay? Malachi said this, we are wasting our time if we gather together in religious circles saying things that we don't mean with our lives. 
offering up sacrifices just so we can do whatever we want to on the weekends. Something's got to change. Just lock the doors. Stop coming in here and acting like you love the Lord when you know that you don't. Stop it. You are playing games. It's a facade. Just close the doors. Pretty shocking, isn't it? This is how the Old Testament is coming. What happened was after Malachi, there were no more prophets speaking. It was quiet. It's foreshadowing another time where there is coming a day when God will give no further words of warning. There will be a day when there will be no more prophet, no more sermon, no more warning. Nobody even on the street corner is telling you to turn or burn. Those days will be over. The warnings are here. The warnings are now. Are we listening to them? Because in those days, there was nothing. It was quiet. In fact, you come to an interesting page, and your Bible may not look like this, but, but mine does. One of the most haunting pages in the Bible for me. You may not be able to see it, but I'm going to at least show it to you. Can you see this? It's a blank page. It's a blank page between Malachi and Matthew. And this is what it represents. 400 years of silence. 400 years. Silent years before the answer was known if God had forgotten about them. There was no prophet who rose up after Malachi. There was nobody saying, thus saith the Lord. There was nobody coming. There's a blank page in the Bible because it was quiet, because God had said, enough warnings. That blank page in the Bible, you had to wonder that people were wondering, had they been left on their own? Would something change? And we know, obviously, if you turn one more page over, that as we look tonight, things get a lot quick, uh, better in, in a moment, Right? the appearance of somebody who that this whole Old Testament has been prophesying about. But hear this. Make sure that you understand. Because those people didn't know if God was going to speak again. They didn't know if he was going to return. They didn't know if there would be any type of reconciliation with him. And yet, just like them, if you don't know when the Lord is coming, you better repent as if it were today. Because when Jesus appears in the temple, when Jesus shows up on the scene, everything changes. And while Jesus came in a glorious way in the first time, it's going to be nothing like when he comes the second time. When he comes, there is no more time for warning, and we need to get right right now as if he could come at any point. The Old Testament, folks. Why is the Old Testament so important for our lives? Because it is a consistent reminder of when God's people don't act like God's people, what happens. The reason why I bring that to you is um, I can remember when I was in college and a good friend of mine was dating a girl and um, sweet couple working, they thought working towards marriage and whatnot and really just enjoyed each other's company. I'll never forget uh, one night he came to my dorm room and just in tears and I said, what's up? He said, I got to tell you what happened with my girlfriend tonight. I thought they broke up. He goes, no, 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 we didn't break up. She should have dumped me a long time ago. Well, see, you got to understand this. His girlfriend had just received Christ about six months earlier. Now, he had he'd been a follower of Jesus for about 10 years at this point and was a pretty spiritually mature guy. Loved the Lord, read his Bible, went to church, all this kind of stuff. They started dating. It probably wasn't the greatest way to start the dating process because she really didn't know Jesus, but she eventually did get to know Jesus, and she started reading her Bible. And so things are going really good. They're really excited until that one night he comes back in my dorm, and he starts crying, and he looks at me, and I said, what's wrong? What's What's the matter? He said, Travis, i got to be honest with you. He said, our, the physical side of our relationship has always been over the line of where it should be. 
Now, it's always weird, guys. I know that if there's a line here, right, like, hey, this is permissible and this is not so much, unless you define what that is in a relationship, you're always going to cross it. Always will. You got to determine what that is. And you also can't say, oh, it's that, because I'm saying there's a whole lot of stuff here that leads towards other things, right? And once you get used to one type of activity, you don't go backwards. You only have to at least do that or something more. That's how this works. And, and the desires aren't bad in of themselves, but the wrong thing at the wrong time it is sinful. God has a path for those things to meet those needs. And anytime you break it, so here's the deal. He says, we've been out where we shouldn't have been for a very long time. I said, so why, why, what happened tonight? He said, she's been reading her Bible a lot. And finally, I got guilty. And I said, I think that we've probably been thinking that for the last three months since I've known Jesus. But since you're a lot closer to God, I never questioned it. I just assumed maybe I was being immature because you know better. So this is the challenge for us here this morning. You can look at your college campus today and think about how horribly everybody is living their lives. And you can think you're better. Because if you look comparatively to where they are, to where you are, you do look holy. But can I just remind you, they're not the standard this is. God is. And so my question is, somebody looking at you and thinking it's okay for them to do what they're doing because you're the people of God on their campus and there's no different with you and them. You're the godly ones, and if you're okay with it, then why is it going to bother me? Before we take another moment this weekend, now is the time for us to say, search me, O oh God. Is there anything hurtful in me? And to repent, to turn around, to make a change in our lives. I don't even have to give a list of sins right now because the Spirit's annoying you and you're trying to push it out. As soon as I say this, folks, if I can just be an Old Testament prophet just for a moment, repent now while you have time. <laughs>